This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. How you been? Long time no see. Good. Likewise. How's, How's life? The, good. Life is treating me well. How about with you? Not bad at all. Really, yeah. really good. I, I really appreciate you having us back on, man. I, I uh, the, uh, we, the biggest boost we've had from any podcast I've done has been off of Mentors for Military. So I, I really appreciate it. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. That's just the kind of, I think, thing that's out there right now is that people listen to this and hear what you guys are doing and want to play some kind of role. And so maybe it'll help you guys from a financial standpoint, if nothing else. Yeah, no. And, and the, the sense that I have is we're, we're all working different lanes, yeah. you know, oh, but they're, it's, it's all, we're trying to be better people. We're trying to serve our communities, you know? So it, it, there's a lot of overlap this year that I'm really excited about. Yeah. Well, 2019 was a really good year for us anyway, as far as our podcast show. We got in the top five of Podbean in yeah. all of 2019 podcasts for our category, which is tremendous. Um, we were in the top 10 in, in our category all year long, just about for every uh, week. And so we're hoping like two, tw 2020 is going to be just as amazing. So um, you're the second episode we're going to be having on the show for 2020. And as I understand it, this week or this month is actually, what is it, Sex Trafficking Awareness Month? Human Trafficking Prevention and Awareness Month. Oh, okay. Yes. It's got a much better name than what I just said then. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it's just a little bit more broad. And then 11 January is actually Human Trafficking Awareness Day. Okay, so that's, so that's Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Okay. And so are you guys having some kind of uh, awareness or event or anything for that? A, t a ton of stuff. We're actually, we'll be holding a self-defense seminar on, on the 11th. Okay. And then I'll fly to Las Vegas. And at, like we were just talking about, I've, we've partnered up with Tim Kennedy and oh, yeah. Dog Hunts, that group. Yeah. Um, so I, what I provide them is a free, free cadre, you know, where I help, I help teach the courses. Sure. And they, and then they provide us with kind of access to Tim's network and we're doing a pilot program uh, in two weeks where we're taking a couple of survivors from sex trafficking and they're going to go through the sheepdog response training. So there's just, again, there's just a lot, a lot of us that we want to work together and find ways to do it. It's starting, it's starting to slowly happen. So it, it'll be an interesting month. Yeah. Yeah. Though that's tre tremendous, man. He's got a huge sphere of influence. Yeah. 
we're excited, dude. Yeah, yeah. We're really, really good. Yeah, tremendous. So, all right. So let's break it down to the nitty gritty. Uh, first off, okay. welcome back on the podcast because we've covered already a whole lot here. But I want to get back into your humble beginnings because in the very first uh, podcast that we did, we talked, I think, a lot more about Guardian Group. And although we just started it off and uh, you know, whether you knew we were taping or not, we were actually taping. So, <laughs> so, so we, uh, we started it off with talking a little bit about Guardian Group and the success that you're having and some of the things that you've got planned uh, coming up. And we'll dive in that a little bit deeper probably as we get through this thing. But I don't know in the first podcast, Jeff, if we really dove into your background and why it is that you're so passionate about this and what it is from your background that you're actually using as part of the knowledge base, skills, you know, and those types of yeah. things to really lead this endeavor. Because people may go and look at Guardian Group and they may not quite fully understand the level of experience that's within this organization. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. Um because we, you know the special forces community and coming out of Delta with with folks like Tom, the quiet professionals is our is our motto. So it's really taken me a couple years to be a little bit more open mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel much more comfortable with a little more water under the bridge, being able to talk about my past. But when, going all the way back to to when I was young, you know, it's one of those things that's hard to answer. I I've always felt as long as I can remember that I was a, a, a protector, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I'm not a, I'm not a very big guy. I was, I had glasses, you know, I had the classic 1970s hair parted down the middle, just kind of a, kind of a scrawny little kid, but I didn't, I never saw myself that way, Yeah. you know? And, and I always gravitated towards, uh, defending the weak. Now, um, I caveat that with saying I was a jackass. I, yeah, I made fun of people. I picked on people, but it was never bullying. You know, I think the worst the worst thing you could call me is a bully. I hate bullies, man. I've always hated bullies. Right. And at an early age, we, we, we saw kids that were different, you know, um, being picked on. So I, I always remember just having that in my heart. Maybe that's what drove me to join the military. Yeah, you know, it's, so. it's, yeah. there's, there's no epiphany, you know, it's just like this yeah. journey one step at a time. And here we are. Well, I find more people are probably like me, and it may have been the same case for you, too, in addition that um, I just wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. I mean, I was in a small town in a bubble, and I knew that there was life outside of this world. I just didn't know how to get there. My dad was in the Navy. He spent about 23 years in, although he had been out probably, I don't know, six years or so before, five years before I actually joined. And, and I remember that lifestyle, not a whole lot of it, um, but I do remember some of it. And I knew the military was there and it was something that was important to me, but I also knew it was a one-way ticket and, and it was perfect for me. And I find more people that are just like that. You know, uh, not, not me for, not, not me. Um, I loved, I loved where I grew up. I grew up in a little su suburb outside of Milwaukee, great family, great friends. I loved high school, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And one, one of the interesting things is thank God that I'm just maybe a ab slightly above average in a lot of different things. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not really good at anything. You know, I played sports, but you know, we really reward that person. That's really good at one thing. Maybe they're really good at math or they're really good at catching a football or they can run really fast. It, it, it kind of limits your life yeah. and it, and it makes you, it forces you to make choices that maybe you're not ready to make, you know? So when I was in high school, I was a decent runner. I was a, a mile or two mile cross country runner, but it just so happened. There was a couple of like national class athletes on, on the, the same high school team, sure. you know, and they, 
they were getting recruited to go to college. And I just, I, I saw like the Olympic level athlete as the only guy who could go to college and race. I had no idea there was plenty of space for a journeyman like me just to make the top seven, you know? Well, and we, and and we live in that with our college and what you see on television most of the time. And of course, we're talking about a period where there were only three channels that we probably watched outside of, you know, <laughs> you know, the UHF channels or whatever it was. So uh, I totally get it. And so, you know, you didn't know like today that there are thousands of universities that would love to have had you and probably would have offered you to, uh, a scholarship of some sort, even at a junior college, you know, yeah. to be able to attend. So I, I found that out after my first enlistment. So wow. going back to that first story, you know, <laughs> and I was, I did fine in school, but I wasn't smart. No colleges were looking for me, right. you know? So it was come, it was getting close to, um, graduating as a senior. I just wasn't sure what I was going to do. I barely remember the story, saw a recruiter, heard about special forces and Rangers and thought, man, that, that would really be something to do. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I, I remember also rationalizing, Hey, it's only four years of my life. If how how bad how bad can yeah, it be? Right, right. You know, and it, I ended up falling in love with it. Yeah. You know? So, what did you go in as initially? What MOS? So, so I went in as an eleven, an eleven X-ray. Okay. Which, okay. Which is the yeah. unassigned the catch-all, right? Ranger. Yeah. yeah. So you know, again, I, I uh, my recruiter out there, screw you, brother. You didn't do me anything <laughs> good. I asked him, how do you how do you become a ranger? Oh, this is how you do it. You know, you'd sign up as an 11 x-ray and then you volunteer for all this stuff. Well, right. only by the grace of God. I could have been a, back then. Remember the tow gunners oh, yeah. and yeah. the mic and all, all those things that aren't in the Ranger MTO. Like yeah. I could have got uh, tasked with one of those. So yeah. as luck would have it, I, I, it just it just fell that way. And it really was at uh, at Rip where I began to understand what I was really in for. Oh, no lie. So, I mean, you actually got picked up then because, you know, going back to the recruiter part of it, having been a recruiter uh, for a number of years, I can tell you that the reason why we did that is because we knew then. Oh, here come the excuses. Here, here comes. Yeah. So we knew <laughs> that by sending you down to the MEPS and getting you pumped up for 11 series, dude, there's going to be a ton of 11 series needs of the Army opportunities that, that are going to be available. However... The opportunities to get in in Ranger Regiment are very slim. So if I sew you on what I definitely know, then at least you'll get your foot in the door and I'll sew you okay. on. Well, when you get there, you'll have an opportunity to prove yourself. So let's go. You you go to um, you know AIT, OSIT, and everything. You end up graduating. You go to Airborne School. Did you get picked up while you were in OSIT, or did you get um, picked up or recruited while you were in Airborne School? volunteered for airborne school got it and then at airborne school volunteered for for rangers and, and went, okay. went right to rip so yeah. you know I, I see i see your logic and i'm sure they see a lot of kids who have delusions of grandeur you know and again yeah. i go back to what i look like right. scrawny little four-eyed kid this kid ain't gonna be a ranger you know that kind of thing but <laughs> right. but bob you know what i remember also is uh I, i'm sure there's thought behind it but I, but i also remember as a private standing in formation and the drill sergeant saying hey uh you guys over here, looking at the platoon. Hey, you, you four will go over there. You six go over there, and, and and you five go over there. You guys are going to Korea. You guys are going to Germany. And I thought, oh my God, this guy just altered the the future. Yeah. He didn't ask if anyone was married. He no. didn't ask if anyone wanted to go to Korea. Like if I if I would have been in that batch, guess who wasn't going airborne or ranger because they don't have that in Korea. Yeah. You know. So very very early, I realized, oh my goodness, these guys are making destiny decisions 
over a, over their breakfast coffee. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, I, you you better make it happen. <laughs> I, you wonder how much logic they actually put into this. How much thought did they actually? I mean, so are, did we have a bunch of drill sergeants sit around with a cup of coffee and trying to figure out who really should? No, they just went down through it and just like you just said. All right, uh, hey, let me break this thing apart. All right, a guy doesn't know any better. He doesn't even know it's not offered within Ranger Regiment. He does, you know, he may get an airborne assignment still. He goes off the airborne school, maybe, maybe not, you know, depending upon how his contract was set up. And then he finds out that he can't even go to Ranger Regiment because he's not even MOS qualified. He went to the same school as you, though, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, but they and, they decided to give him a different thing. Yeah. And And the thing I think back to, too, was, Bob, I was 17 years old when I went in. Yeah. 17. I, I, I turned I turned yeah. 18 in in basic or advanced or whatever whatever it was called. I, I think back to that. Who, who knew? Now I, I'm switching topics on you a little bit, but I want I definitely want to mention this because we're, you know, uh, Iran's rattling its sabers and people are talking about World War Three and all that all that type of nonsense. But you know the the men and women today, the boys and girls that were our age back then, mm-hmm. man, they're they're going to step up. I am not one of these fuddy duddies that that say, "Oh, America, look, man, there's there's a lot of stuff that I'm disappointed with." But one of the things I'm not disappointed with is our youth. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you and I joined the military, there was no war. There yeah. was no war on the horizon. No. These kids that are joining now, they they know they're going to war. They're going to go to war in Afghanistan or Syria and Iraq, and they're going to go to wars that largely. Our country doesn't care about, and we're not going to win. We're not going to win those wars. These, but these kids are still showing up, yeah, and they're doing their service. And to me, it's incredibly humbling. So when I was out on recruiting duty, you know, there wasn't a whole lot going on. We had, you know, Grenada. We had Panama. Um, we had, um, I think that was it by that time frame. And so, you know, because this was like 1985, 86, 87 time frame. And I remember when I got to Fort Benning off of um, recruiting duty in 1990 and Desert Storm came out. I thought, oh, my God, first off, all these guys I put in are probably going to come looking for me. Um, That's the first thought. Second thought was, damn, I feel bad for those recruiters that are out there because now they're going to have to try to convince these kids they got to go in. And it turned out, like you said, even in that time frame, much different than I anticipated. The population to be able to go into is much smaller, and yet they're still arriving on the doorsteps, and recruiters are still yeah. uh, finding them. Amazing. But you know that—that's where I, I still believe there is a culture and a spirit in America. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go back to our founding fathers, which it's somewhat in vogue to bash those guys now, and and the the colonialism and all that, brother, we are a nation of fighters and adventurers and rejects. You know, mm-hmm. that's what. Yeah. That's where we came from. And I think that's still our core. Even today, well, I don't care what you want to talk about these fringes, the American fighting spirit is alive and well. And I think places like Iran know that. These yes. other nations, they, they know that. You know, we talk about gun control. Again, we're not, you and I aren't getting into politics on this, yeah. but I'm talking about the spirit of America. Man, don't mess with the American fighting spirit. Yeah. We will step up to the plate. Every single time. For whatever it's worth right now, everything seems to be going well. So hopefully that continues and we're, we're going to remain on the same path going forward. But anyway, yeah. let's jump back. So so you okay. go through RIP. Um, after you get done with RIP and stuff, I'm sure they asked you in that time frame, 87. I'm trying to think third bat uh, was not around at that time frame, right? So it was still first and second bat? 
So third was was just coming online because I ended up having that whatever they call that split station. So I went home for a few months. Okay. So by the time I came back, there was third, but nobody wanted to go to third battalion because that was still the, at Fort Benning. That was yeah. the new one by the flagpole. <laughs> I think that's still true today. Anytime yeah. I see my third bat brothers, yeah. Um, so I, uh, I, I don't even know. I don't think I, I don't, I don't think I really cared. I didn't understand Fort Lewis or or Savannah, Georgia. Living by the beach seemed pretty cool. And it just that that's ended up how it how it broke. So Hunter Air, Army Airfield still a one of the best locations for an army position. Yeah, you know Savannah could care less if you if if you were there or not. Right. You know, uh, right. it's just it was it was great living to to start a career and and uh, get married and 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 begin that life. Geez, not to mention you got one of the best St. Patty's Day around in the country, and uh, the girls come up and kiss you and the whole bed. You know, I've seen all those photos. Brother, did you hear that uh, Kevin Berry's just shut down? No. That's you know Ke- Kevin Kevin Berry's is was the the prime Irish pub right down there at River Street in Savannah, and he just he just shut down. I, Why? I, 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 I think he just got old and he hmm. didn't have anyone to hand it to. But it was it was the place that everyone went to. Uh, I'm actually getting back in touch a little bit with the Ranger route because of the 30th anniversary of Just Cause. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people talking. Uh, and it's it's kind of interesting interesting to me because it's much more nostalgic and formative than my my later career. You know, like Special Forces and Delta, I was already a professional soldier. Right. So it's it's just a very different look. Um, let me share something with you quick. I, I was down at Fort Benning maybe a year ago, and I was down there to talk about sex trafficking for Guardian Group and talking to church and, and et cetera. I had some time to kill, and I was cruising around Benning, and I went to Harmony Church which those barracks are gone. I went to the old rip. Those barracks are gone. I mm-hmm. went to the old, you know, the ranger school stuff is still there. I went to the sniper school and Bob, I had to pull over and fight back tears. Yeah. You know, because it was like taking nothing away from my family, my parents, but I, I can go to a tiny little plot of red dirt where rip used to be, which is where I decided to be to, to, to man up, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I, and I thought about these men, these drill sergeants and these instructors who back then, again, scrawny kid, they don't know anything about me, but they poured their life into me. You know, they poured some of their uh, knuckles into me too. You back in those days, yeah. oh, <laughs> you know, yes. but Much different. it's like, I, you know, I, I just wanted to say, and I don't, you know, those, none of those guys are going to remember me. I remember a bunch of them by name. It's like, look guys, you poured into me and you created a soldier and I, in turn, fought America's wars for a decade and a half and, and led other men and women into combat. Like, mission accomplished, I owe you, I owe you everything. It was absolutely an odd experience, um, fighting back tears. Yeah. Grown-ass man <laughs> sitting, yeah. sitting on the side of the road in Fort Benning fighting, fighting off tears. You I know? feel you, because I actually, <laughs> I remember my last assignment, I went TDY often. And I got out. To, it's so funny how I have done this often in my life where I end up going back someplace or something that's tied to me and my family. I end up going there on vacation or whatever. It's not even planned. So in this case, you know, I started off, I was actually armor. I started off armor. I was at Fort Knox, Kentucky. So of course, this last TDY assignment they sent me on was to Fort Knox. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, this would be kind of cool to go back there and see, you know, the old armor, maybe even go to Disney barracks where I was at and everything in that time frame. And like you, um, I pull on post and there's nobody around. I mean, it's like tumbleweeds rolling by. It's totally dead. Everybody had pretty much left and moved out of there. 
I go to Fort Benning now. And the, well, the very first time I went back to Fort Benning, the, the last time was like in the mid nineties. So, you know, fast forward, like say another 10 years, I go back to there and everybody's gone much the same way. I mean, you go out there now, um, what used to be, I guess, third ID and she's a 197th infantry brigade, whatever yeah. name they dollar, you wanted. dollar 97. Yes. You, you, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is that you want to call that area that was out there because it changed names so often is nothing but again cobwebs tumbleweeds rolling through there there's no hustle and bustle there on installation it's primarily tradoc no force com entities yeah sure yeah. ranger regiment is there third bats there but hell they got brand new barracks it's a brand new fence compound looks really nice um i didn't even recognize it. i drove by and i was like oh so that's it you know i drove around where the old place was and stuff and i had to like totally get my bearing. thank god that the towers are still there so i can figure out my bearing of where i am on fort benning you know? Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. But 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 that's what happens. You bump into that stuff, and and it's you 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 see it again. You know, and arriving at Fort Benning for me, first time I got on an airplane was to fly to basic training. You know, mm-hmm. first time I heard a, a real Boston accent, a New York New York accent, or the Southerners. I'm I'm waiting <laughs> if, for your accent actually to come out. It, I think it comes out when I visit. I you know so that was eighty seven. I've I've been gone since eighty seven. You know yeah. I go come back to visit, but I I hear it now when I go home. I'm like, wow, you guys sound ridiculous. Wisconsin, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not even picking it up at all. So come on now, it'll come out. It'll come out. <laughs> I heard it right then. Okay, <laughs> you know, and, and Bob, you were talking about armor. You know, I was light infantry all my all all my career, even before I went special special forces. But I remember doing some work at Fort Knox. And I remember working at NTC. And attached to some armor units. And I'll never forget it because, it again, we're talking about culture. It was such a different culture. Those guys sat down and they looked at a map, right? And we're, we're on a 1 over 50,000th or 1 over 25,000th map because we're moving on foot. You know, if we can right. move five kilometers. But these guys are looking at NTC at Fort Irwin, moving 30, 40 kilometers a shot. And it was it was basically the plan was, okay, you guys go left, you guys go right. We'll meet up here at this at this uh, at this whatever uh, phase line. Destroy everything in your way. Any questions? Nope. Got it. Like it was it was such a distributed trust style of leadership. Yeah. I stood there as an infantry, infantryman going, "Wow, this this is something we need to take into play." And I, I and I've always incorporated that since then. When I maneuvered troops, it was that was that. Look, you guys know what you're doing. You go left. You go right. Call me if you need something. Otherwise, see you at the rally point. Yeah. And uh, had a blast ever since. Learned yeah. a ton from those. You know, when, when you leave RIP, you're now a, a part of regiment and stuff. How long did you end up staying with that? Was that just the, the initial four-year enlistment? and Or did you so decide I, to stay I, longer? I ended up uh, um, extending. Remember back when you could extend? So yeah. I, I ended up doing five years. So I got, I got scuba school. And nice. then I heard about... Heard about uh, Delta. So here, here's here's how I heard about Delta, okay? Because back then, you know, you, you never said the word. You know, mm-hmm. I don't even remember what we called them. We called them the Hardy Boys behind the fence. I don't yeah. even remember what we yeah. called them. But I, but I remember we were up at Fort Lewis training one day, and uh, we're, we're shooting stuff on the range. And all of a sudden we get this call. It says, hey, you guys need to shut down the range for an hour. We're like, what's, what's happening? They're like, just shut down the range and get in the, get in the, uh, the stands. So we, we shut down the range. We get in these stands. This Black Hawk helicopter lands. These dudes jump out. I, I swear to you, Bob, they're dressed, they're dressed just like the Delta Force from the Chuck Norris movies. They got jeans <laughs> on, the black uh, 
uh, field jackets, the black, the, the black balaclava. I think the only thing they lacked was the, uh, the, the, the little rope. I remember, I forget what we called that. The sling rope. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. They jump out of this thing. They're, they got a couple of duffel bags full of, full of different grenade launchers. Oh. So they jump out. They're all older. Half of them have beards. I'm like, who the heck are these guys? You know, they shut, they shut the ranger training down. These guys jump out. They shoot a couple of rounds of these, these different types of grenade launchers. The helicopter comes back and they take off. Now, in hindsight, it was probably the combat development directorate, you know, for, for Delta. But I'm sitting there going, who the hell are these guys? And how do I become one? Because they just <laughs> shut down Ranger training and they look like they're doing whatever the hell they want. So I started to hear about, about the unit and, and we had a couple guys that would go. Um, and again, like I said before, the only, the only dudes we knew that were going from first battalion, they were like the superstars, you know, just these physical Olympic athletes. But then a couple guys made it that were kind of my, you know, they're older than me, but they were like, well, if, if he can make it, I can make it. Mm-hmm. So I, I put all my chips in to go to, to the unit. But I had bad eyes. My eyes were whatever. They, they were correctable. You know, I, had, I got a waiver for scuba school. I got a waiver for sniper school. I, I had a waiver for everything. But, but Delta said, no, you're not, you're not getting a waiver. So I've never, I've never said this on, uh, on air somewhere. I've told this story a couple times. But I'll, I'll, I think, again, enough water has, has been under the bridge. Yeah. Do you, have you ever heard of, or do you remember the legendary Doc Donovan, the ranger, the ranger doctor? No. He's a Vietnam vet. So Doc Donovan was, I mean, th- this guy was our idol. He was the PA. I went to Doc. I said, Doc, uh, they, they won't let me go to the unit. They won't even let me try out. He, he's, he takes my records. He says, what do, you, what, what do your eyes need to be? And he basically <laughs> fills in on this physical what my eyes need to be. Wow. So I send that in. Long story short, the unit says, nice try, bud. Oh, so they, <laughs> they even catch, figured it out. They, they catch the discrepancy before I get to go to the shroud. I'm begging them, just let me try out. Oh, my god! And gosh. just like you said a few minutes ago, I'm the smartest, and you know, I'm the smartest. I think I was an E5, becoming an E6 or something, and I, I became that angry ranger. Okay, I can't, I can't be or do what I, what I want to do, then yeah, the right. hell with all of it. And I'm and I'm going to leave, mm-hmm. and that that's what kind of pushed pushed me out the door. Plus, I just wasn't sure if I wanted. Remember, we called them lifers. I didn't know if I wanted to be a lifer. Yeah, you know, Who does? I did five years, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I tell you, it, it didn't take me long to realize I just loved what I did. So you're five years in. You're twenty two, twenty three ish years old. And you're ETSing. Same thing happened to me, by the way. I'm 21. After four, I thought, okay, that's it. Um, I didn't I didn't want to stay in Army anymore. I wanted to go. Actually, I was thinking like infantry. I wanted to go to SF. Um, there were so many different things that I was kind of looking at, but I also got married. So I wasn't sure which route I wanted to go. And yeah. um, that was the dumbest decision I ever made, man. I came back almost begging to come back in the door. So I don't know if your situation was any better in 1991 when you walked, or 92 when you walked out the door, but... Like you, I was married. I had heard these horror stories of these dudes that got out and went to these big universities. You know, like went to, whatever, Ohio State or something and just got swallowed up. So I was afraid to go to a big school. So uh, actually, one of my scuba buddies from Key West... He had lived in Wilmington, North Carolina, where University of North Carolina Wilmington was. And okay. he showed us the town. It was very similar to Savannah. It was just up the road. Uh, my wife's family was living in North Carolina. So it seemed like, okay, this is a no-brainer. Let's, 
uh, I'll I'll start at University of North Carolina Wilmington. It, it, Wilmington seemed like a like a logical place to go at the time. I was I was I was doing a lot of training. Uh, it made sense. I, I remember going to the track cross country coach and saying, "Hey, I'm I'm an athlete. I'm coming out of the military. I'm trying to make a run at triathlons. Would you mind if I uh, trained a little bit with your team?" And he said, "Hey." Lo and behold, we have a tryout in a couple weeks. Why don't you come to the tryout, see where you stack up? So I show up, I go to this tryout, and I, I think I took second in this college tryout for the track cross-country team. Again, not knowing that there's a lot of different levels of collegiate running. Sure. So I, I, I was good enough for him to offer me a scholarship, uh, give up my aspirations of being a triathlete, and, and running for UNC Wilmington. And, that, and I really found a home there. I don't know what I would have done without a, a team. You know, that definitely kept me kept yeah. me uh, sane. And then, again, just to n- not make a, a, a story too long, uh, I ended up going out to Montana with a friend to train and climb and bumped into the coaches from Montana State and saw that program. It was a top 15 in the, in the nation program. There was a place for me. Um, they, they made it possible for a scholarship to, to transfer out there. Uh, got arranged with UNC women, so I ended up transferring from UNC Wilmington out to Montana State. Wow! And 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 started running out there. And while I was there, I also was beginning to feel like, man, I I have a lot of skills from the military that I just kind of haven't been using or employing. And they had an ROTC program, and I talked to some folks there and said, man, I'd love to help. I'll I'll train your Ranger Challenge team. I'll teach your guys how to do tactical stuff. So I was like, hey, that, I love doing this. So I, I wanted to help all these ROTC kids, you know, and again, the, the primary military instructor, he was pretty clever because I tell you what, he just, he reeled me in, man. So I started helping. I had a beard. I was running. He's like, yeah, why don't you come help us out? And then slowly but surely he says, why don't, why, what are your goals? What do you want to do? And I, I wanted to be a psychologist. And what I ended up walking back into was looking at, um, one of these selection and assessment selection psychologists, those, they were just coming online. Now this is the mid nineties is about 95, 96 and the Rangers and special forces and Delta, they were building these assessment professionals with, with psychologists to help build these teams. I thought, well, that would be pretty cool. So I can't go to, I can't go to Delta as an operator, but I could, I could go to Delta as a psychologist and help them build their team and their professions and all of that. I thought that'd be neat. So I started moving down that track. I had a, a scholarship for running. I got a scholarship for ROTC. Everything was golden. You know, you get five years to do four when you're when you're competing in college. And then, Bob, I went to Fort Lewis for the little summer camp that they do. Mm-hmm. And I just realized how much I missed maneuvering troops in the woods. Yeah. And I came back. I said, I think I just want to go back infantry. And then, around that same time, I had heard that Delta was taking guys with the correct division. So hmm. now my dreams from 1992 were back online where, okay, I, I could potentially go back to Delta as an officer uh, with, the corrected, with the corrected eyes. So that was it. I threw all my education down and said, I'm going to go back infantry and then um, went up to, to Fort Lewis at Second Ranger Town, which is where I'm at. I'm up here at Fort Lewis right now. I'm on my way up to Seattle. What was it that changed then about the eyesight? Was it that the the military just recognized that they had uh, put too much eye of a standard? Was it a need that was actually out there for operators? What what was it that caused that change? You think? I think the the PRK surgery mm-hmm. that oh. there was enough 
there was enough data that yes. showed it was safe. So okay. they started testing out. You know, they, they thought when you would Halo or Scuba, there would be some issues. Um, so they, they found out that that data would be fine. I had some friends that were in the unit that I kept in touch with. And they told me, oh, yeah, everyone's getting it. You know, it's, it's, it's just one of those things now. Yeah. So as an officer, though, it, you know, you've got about eight to ten years of work you have to do to kind of prove yourself and check all those officer blocks before, before you can come back. So I was lucky enough to go to the 2nd Ranger Battalion. Um, How is that going back in as an officer? You know, Bob, I, I never felt much different, you know, until, until it got huh. close to retirement. Yeah. You know, um, I, and maybe it's just because I was raised an NCO, you know, and I, and, and I, I saw we had two kind of um, complementary jobs, you know, and it was a very different climate. When I was in 1st Battalion, it, it was really an unhealthy climate between the NCOs and the officers. I mean, we... We, we did not regard our officers highly at all. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to, our, to our detriment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not like that by this time. So when I got back, when I went back into 2nd Battalion, uh, General uh, Colonel McChrystal was the regimental commander, uh, Sergeant Major Hall. He was my first sergeant back when I was an a enlisted guy. Wow, so names. they had, be, yeah. you know, but they had begun to kind of remodernize um, the Ranger Battalion's off of kind of what else what else had occurred and of course Somalia had occurred so it was a it was a very different feel and I was welcomed with open arms it was never um I, yeah I've just I've just always felt like my NCO counterpart and I we were a leadership team there were certain things he had to do there were certain things I had to do and you know we just we just worked together I've, I've, I, I didn't start feeling like an officer until I made lieutenant colonel and then and then life started to yeah, get a much, little bit weird. Yeah, much <laughs> so I, I just remember back in the day, and again, this is you know early to mid nineties. I didn't think regiment took uh, second lieutenants. You had to be at least a first lieutenant, and the only second lieutenants I think that they would allow were individuals who came from Korea. <laughs> All right, so I was going to skip over this part of the story, but you busted <laughs> you busted me. All right, so this is. So the way the way that it worked was if you were a successful NCO yeah. in regiment, you could come back as a as a butter bar. Wow. That was the way that was the way it always was. Well, when McChrystal took over, he said, I'm cha- I'm changing that rule. And I was down at Fort Benning uh, becoming a becoming an officer at that time. Yeah. And I remember seeing him around the around the day of his change of command. And and I went to him. I don't I doubt he remembers this, but I was like, sir. Again, you realize you just shifted my my whole destiny. Like I'm here, I'm ready to go to Fort Lewis. My family's ready. It's what I was counting on, and you just changed this rule, you know. And and he said, Jeff, I got it. I I but I just changed the rule. Like I can't. The first thing I can't do is make an exception. So he said, I'll, I'll tell you what. And he they friends made friends made calls, and they ended up getting me to one five infantry, which is literally across the street from second battalion. They said, go up there, do a half a year or nine months as they had a scout platoon that was open. Uh, that is where I got my experience working NTC and the Fort Knox stuff. They said, go up there and do that. And then we'll slide you over into second battalion. So I, I did do, a, a, I think a year ish in one five infantry. Absolutely loved it. Um, the, the scout platoon I had was all of the ranger kickouts. Uh, you know what I mean? Cause yeah. you know how that works when you, when you do something. And they're not bad either. I mean, these are good dudes. It's just, you, you know, know, it was more of, they got a DUI or they got in a fight. I mean, they, right. it was the, the scout platoon I had was basically a, a, a ranger platoon. It was absolutely, it was magical. 
and then making the slide over uh, to, to 275. And it was, it was old friends. Actually, um, Captain Odom, who is a general now, I believe, he he was one of my lieutenants when I was in. You know, I mean, it was one of those things where yeah. it, was, it was it wasn't quite like going home because first battalion, you know, right. but up to second second battalion. But but I I loved every minute of it, um, but was deathly afraid of going mechanized. Mm. And at that time, that was you huge. were a light yeah. light lieutenant. They wanted you to be a heavy captain. Yep. And I also began to realize I just really loved the small unit stuff. Yeah. You know, do you remember remember that book, Mask of Command? Oh yeah. John Keegan. Yeah. You know, and the, and that always stuck with me where as you get higher in rank and you're the, the group that you command, the size of it, you get to pretend you're somebody you're not. You know, like that. Think of that Ranger Company commander. He gets to walk out in front of his 150 guys and, you know, bark a few orders and go back in the office. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas that platoon leader, that's that that that's that operation attachment commander, the troop commander in Delta. Look, man. You live with those guys. So you, you have no mask to hide behind. You better be who you are. And I, and I realized early on that that's really what I, I enjoy doing. Yeah. Um, I already had respect for special forces because of my experience in Desert Storm and then my experience going through scuba school and things. Um, so made, made the jump from the Black Beret <laughs> to, the, uh, to the Green Beret. And it, it's funny. I was there when that... Um, when they were talking about that change and I was the, you know, I was the wise, wise captain at the time. Uh, cause I had gone through the change in first battalion from the OG one Oh seven uniform mm. to the BDUs. Yeah. And the BDUs were known as the battalion departure uniform. That's what we <laughs> called them. So, you know, I had no clue. So it's late in the late eighties. We're all wearing OG one Oh sevens and the guys wearing the battalion departure uniform. I mean, you might as well have the scarlet letter on. I mean, those were the right. guys that were getting boots. So my only association with the BDU was failure, you know? So the fact that we switched from the OG one Oh sevens to the BDUs and I, we, we weathered that one, the switch from a black to a tan beret. I was, I was the wise captain who was like, Look, Corporal, it's going to be okay. It's going to be, it's going to be okay. It's just a fucking hat. Exactly. <laughs> so, what about um, the selection? Did you end up going through just basic Delta selection, or did you end up going through the the SFAS and Q of Green Beret, and then having to do selection? So, what was your process there? Forgot about that too. So, even, even before Rangers, you have rope, or I think they call it RASMA, Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. Yeah. So even to, to go to that, uh, that was a, that was a small selection again, just to make sure you're physically fit and tactically sound. Loved it. Um, then Special Forces Assessment Selection Q course and went to tenth group. So I I just did this this the process through okay. that. Uh, had, Were you had at a bunch Carson? of friends at Carson. Or? Uh, I, I ended up going to Carson. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's that's where I went to. And and my. Uh, I, uh, man, I met a, a lifetime friend. His name was Bill Dean, uh, Arlie Dean. I met him at Fort Lewis. Just, uh, I mean, we're peas in a pod, Alaska boy. Um, we raced together, trained together. Unfortunately, uh, Billy just got, he got killed this past spring after he retired mm. in a freak accident on, uh, on Mount Rainier. That's so nice. this, this kid, I mean, talk about a great American hero. Again, these, these unsung heroes. Uh, but we met at Fort Lewis. And we did everything together. We did, we did assessment selection. We went to 10th group together. We were in the same battalion and company. We fought adjacent to each other in Iraq for, for many, many years. And then we went to Delta selection from Colorado. 
you know, it, it was just it was it, it was just a magical time. Everything just seemed to to just fall my way, man. Yeah. No, I mean, um, a lot of that has to do with you, though. You talk about it falling your way. You made a conscious effort in every one of these decisions. As I was listening to it, you had a goal and there was nothing that was going to stop you. So, um, you know, you, you can share that it was people that helped you along the way and everything else, but you were driven. I love that. You know, I mean, there, there should be more people out there that set that kind of goal, that expectation and go all in until somebody tells you no. And then you just keep driving until you hear it over and over. What do they say uh, in the sales world? Um, seven no's. Well, that's what you should do all the time for your own career as well. You know, just keep, yeah. keep having people tell you no, because eventually they're going to see, too, how much passion you have. So when you end up going through selection, not everybody passes the first time and gets in as well. I mean, you've got to be a special kind of individual. So it sounds like you got in first time. I I, I did, you know, and it, and it's it's funny. For one thing, Bob is we, we need to encourage our young people just that. Like you, you have to not be afraid to fail. You know, failing forward is is that idea. Now, Absolutely. I was always you know that was the only thing in Delta selection what that I did not enjoy. I mean, I loved it. Again, I you know I, I I'm. I'm not a great athlete, but I was, uh, I, I was very athletic. I, I have certain, uh, endurance gifts so like adventure racing and mountain running. That was my thing. So the Delta selection physically was not difficult, but it was the fear of failing and the fear that this, that my dreams would come crumbling down. And I, I referenced Billy Dean earlier. And I remember also when we were at Fort Carson, he was single, you know, and he'd, He'd come over and, and he'd, you know, he'd have some grand day, you know, whatever, 40 miles in the mountains. Let's do this and do this and do that. And I'm married with two kids. I'm like, Billy, how about, how about just a 10 miler? You know, I'll be back for lunch. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Right. And we would train together. Uh, and, and I, I, I remember talking to him, uh, and, and saying, Bill, the, to me, Delta section, Delta, uh, Delta selection is like an ultra marathon. It's mm-hmm. not who's in front in the beginning. It's not who's in front at the middle. It's who who's getting to the finish line, you know, nice. and that's and that's how I played it out. Um, but again, to Billy's credit, I'll, I'll also never forget him saying he's like, look, you also have a history that that he didn't have. I had five years as that NCO. I led he led men into battle at 10th at, at, uh, group, but I led men into battle in, in Panama and Desert Storm and had that NCO background and, and a bunch of other things. He said I, I he he felt like he needed to really shine at selection, you know, that he needed to be first in everything. Uh, and he recognized that that was a risk, but he felt that it was necessary for him to be noticed and selected. And I'll tell you what, that son of a gun was first on everything. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, I've got to ask you because we've had guys on here that were former Delta that were enlisted side of it. So I'm curious, and we may have some listeners who are paying attention to this, who are from the officer side and going, okay, what's the difference? Because there are typical roles, typical of NCO officer, you know, you had it in Ranger Bat and you'll have it in a regular infantry and the regular military. But do things change? Uh, I know they change slightly uh, within the uh, special forces to some regard. I mean, uh, but what is it like in in the Delta side of things? So the selection is identical for, for one. I don't I don't think that's what you're asking. We yeah. that, I no, think that's, that's good to know. The ma- yeah, yeah, that's one of the things that's that is special about the unit is the the NCOs can look at the officers and know they did the exact same thing that that the NCOs had to do to, to get there. Sure. Um, we actually have a little added bonus 
couple days of fun that I won't talk about because it, it, it'll spoil the fun for those listeners. I had no idea. Like, you know, you get done with the 40 and all the NCOs are done. And then all of a sudden it's it's officer games for a couple days. I was like, no one told me about this. So I'll, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, officers, keep your shit together because there's there's more to it's do once over. you're done. Once yeah. you're done humping. Yeah. Um, but then when you get to the get to the unit. So, I, again, I would say. When I got to Delta, they were already on a war footing. You know, I got there in 2005. They've been they've been fighting since 2001. You know, 2003 they had they had a rock. So I think the officer that was needed in Delta when I got there was was the type of officer I was a, a tactician, a strategist, mm-hmm. somebody who who just knew how to how to fight, how to integrate sure. uh, b- battle operating systems. These are old words we used to use. Yep. Integrate battle operating systems. So there was a lot to do. You know, that officer back in the 90s, when there wasn't war, you know, he represented the unit in a different way. And he might not have been as integrated mm-hmm. into into the NCOs that that have been there for 10, 15, 20 years. But when I got there, we were sorely needed. You know, we were we needed to know how to fight our troops together. We needed to know how to fight our squadrons together. We needed to know how to integrate with all of the other um systems on the battlefield from like we talked about armor to mechanized to ADA to these foreign units. So uh, that was, that was my role. And one of the ways that we talk about it in the, in the unit is the, when you're on target, the, the NCO is down and in, he's controlling the fight. He's controlling what's happening right here in the here and now. And the officer is looking up and out. Mm. He's controlling whatever is flying in the sky, what's happening next. And that was kind of how we divided the, the labor on, on the battlefield. So I loved it. Um, yeah, again, until you, until you get higher up, once you leave a troop and you start moving into staff positions yeah. and now you're kind of planning campaigns and, and things like that, riding a desk a lot more, working on staffs. That was when I stopped feeling like, uh, an NCO disguised as an officer and, uh, you know, yeah. somebody that was actually an officer yeah. and lost some of its allure. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of uh, people listening to this who aren't already aware, I mean, some of the probably the biggest recruiting areas that Delta finds the unit finds its uh, force from are the Rangers. I mean, a lot of them come from they come from all walks of life, mind you. But um, Ranger uh, Regiment is certainly one of those areas where uh, a lot of guys end up transferring over. So I, I always tell guys, if you're even thinking about going to something like the unit, that's something you really desire to do. Or for that matter, even special forces, you get a good baseline there in regiment. And then, then it's a different world, mind you, when you leave there and you go to the other, you know, especially if you go to just special forces, very different than Ranger Regiment. Uh, the mindset, well, the daily regime, you know, very different. And, it, and it's fascinating, too, because we all we kind of get set on that one track, you know, to be the operator officer. Um, and that's what I've always told people also in special forces and especially in Delta in, in special operations command and JSOC, man, there's a lot of different aspects of warfare that they need officers in. they need singletons in there's an entire careers that we don't even, that we don't even talk about, you know, and that's one of the things that I find ironic. Um, one of my good friends, he's still in the unit. Okay. It's 2020. Now he's been in the unit for 15 years, but he failed selection. Okay, so he didn't get on that track that that we did. He got, he failed selection, yeah. but he was picked up to come to the unit right. as a as a support officer. Because if okay. you know if you if you don't pass selection, if you don't pass uh, OTC, if you're a if you're a quality dude, 
oftentimes they'll ask you to come and work as an assistant operations officer or, or in some kind of specialty thing. And this dude is so talented, he hasn't left. Hmm. You know, so his at that you know, there's so many different career paths in all of these different styles of warfare that yeah. kind of blur that line between unconventional warfare, conventional warfare, kind of agency three letter three letter agency type style of warfare, intelligence collection operations. Um, there's just there's no reason to leave. Yeah. It's it's an amazing opportunity to, to to defend and support your country in in some really interesting jobs for a for a career. What I picked up too, though, Jeff, is something when we were very young. You mentioned that when things didn't quite go your way, you decided to go ahead and bail, and you were like, "Okay, man, I'm out of here. I'm out of the military." And then, like me, you know, you come back in. Um, when you become a little bit more seasoned and, and older within the military, whether that's even 10 years, eight years, somewhere along that time frame, you should be making different career changes and different career choices. But I think your point that I take away is keep your heads up, you know, keep your head up as you're going through some of these different types of schools and training and everything else, because somebody's going to be observing you as you're going through it. If you get down on yourself, if you cut yourself short, mm-hmm. if you don't show that you're doing, you know, you're really there for what you be- you were trying to portray that you were there for, then, you know, maybe they won't uh, look at you. But if you're like really heads up, man, all right, well, I'll just come back type of attitude or may, you know, maybe I'll look for something else or I'll try to provide a way to support them, much like you did when you went to college and you said, hey, I'll come back in a different avenue. Look what this guy that you're talking about. They saw that. They recognized that. Hey, come back. Here's a different role we'll have for you. It works in the private sector as well, by the way, in the same same type of setting. People yeah. see your value. And, and and I think that's that's the true magic of of Delta is 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 that people come from all over, male, female, any any place in the service. And if, if you're a quality individual that that has the, the personality and the and the aptitude, they'll, they'll take you on. Um, yeah, and I agree with you, Bob, and what I, where I thought you were going to go that I also agree with is there's also a point where you have to realize who you are and what you, what you mm-hmm. want to do, you know, where, uh, the military has, has its fast track. Like this is what, you, you know, take, take an infantry guy. You're going to be a platoon leader and then you're going to go work staff. Then you're going to be a company commander. You're going to work staff. You're going to be, you know, then a, take a battalion, take a brigade. And, you know, they, they define what success is. And I think too often, um, our soldiers get, get stuck in what that narrow definition of, of successes is. Yep, like yep. I said, I love leading small troops. I have no interest in leading a hundred men, a thousand, five thousand men. It's just not, it's just not who I am. Uh, and I, I think that's part of it too. In you're, we're starting to make some connections here out in the business world, man, don't let the way things are define you or what a success path looks like. Uh, routinely define you. If you know who you are and you know what you want, yes, you should be unstoppable. You yep. really should. Yeah. Now, I I think that's a, a great set of advice, and and hopefully people are listening to this do just that, and they they don't let anybody use the sound bites to try to define who they are, because if they really know, going back to, you know, if you really know who you are, what you want to be, what you want to do, then keep going, keep driving. So now let's fast forward because you use now all of those skills that you had and chasing down, identifying the bad guys and taking out high value targets and everything else. You know, you go and you create this organization where you're doing much the same thing in the private sector and helping the LEO um, try to identify these individuals. 
but we're becoming as much more sophisticated, I think, like with your organization and being, being able to identify those um, fingerprints, those footprints, those calling cards, those things that help identify these individuals. Tell us, tell us more about that. Yeah. So part of the, the transition was, again, looking at myself. Who am I? What do I like to do? And I, I like fighting an adversary, you know, and, and when I began to look at this, the civilian world and what was meaningful to me and a bunch of different events and just kind of a, a quiet calling to address sex trafficking in America, I literally chose um, predators and pimps as my next worthy opponent. You know, and I've always looked at it that way. I don't, I don't, I don't have anything against anyone we've ever fought, from the the Panamanian Defense Forces to Al Qaeda to ISIS. It's like, look, you you choose a side, I choose a side, and we're gonna we're gonna fight it out. You'll win some, I'll win some. You know, I think uh, I think me and my team we're gonna come out on top. So make your choices wisely. You know that that kind of thing. And 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 that's how we're working it with um, with these pimps and these predators. And and actually, Bob, just a, a slight correction: we don't even mess with the deep dark web. Yeah, it is it is so prolific on the open internet. We don't even have to go there yet. A, a measure of success for us will be that we have pushed the commercial sex trade off of the regular open internet down to the deep dark web. Right now, we have more work than we can handle just on commercial escort sites and the exploitation that that's just at everyone's fingertips. That's crazy. So, yeah, you said it exactly. We're, we're trying to repurpose our veterans very specifically from the special ops community, our intelligence analysts, our operators, and just apply them to this this new target set. And instead of having it be an Afghani force, an Iraqi force, a Somali force, whomever, our partner nations are, are American cops. You know, and they they are just resource they are just as resource constrained as these other nations that I that I mentioned. They they need assistance. So help people understand that that um, when we talk about what you're trying to to find or who you're trying to find, it may be out in the open market, but a lot of people are susceptible. It's just, um, you know, how they're going about, they're used, becoming more and more sophisticated. And just like our enemies, they always have a vote in how things turn out. And the same thing is true here. They're becoming much more sophisticated of how they're going about um, putting these people into sex trafficking or prostitution. Yeah, and I, I don't remember exactly what we talked about last time, Bob, so maybe I'll, I'll repeat, repeat a few things. That's but, fine. Um, you know, one of the things that we know uh, we cannot tell. So the, the, the research that's out there, when you talk about buyers, we call the Johns or the buyers, those guys that are, that are buying sex, there is no discernible difference between any, 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 any race. It's whites, blacks, Hispanics, Latinos, Asians. They all, they're all buying sex at about, at about the same rate. Yep. What we can identify is what we call is a high volume buyer. A high volume buyer is it's either 10 or 12 a year purchases a year. So that's once a month they're purchasing a girl for sex. That's what's considered a high-volume buyer. Now, a high-volume buyer, they can tell demographically, on uh, they, they're most likely to make over $100,000 or $110,000, okay? So when you're talking about how we can tell differences in buyers, the it's more likely that a rich person, someone who's more affluent, is, is going to frequent these prostitutes more. It's not that big of a of a uh, epiphany for folks. If you have more disposable income, you're going to spend it in illicit ways as well as, you know, positive ways. So it's, it's not that groundbreaking, but the point I'm trying to make is buyers come from all shapes and sizes. 
the high volume buyers are more likely to be affluent. Now, what does an affluent guy want? What does he want to purchase? And that's the other unfortunate thing. When we talk about this as a business, you have to dismiss that the product is a girl. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a product, a product that's being sold. So unless that buyer wants something exotic or foreign, so to speak, he's going to want something that looks like him, that sounds like him, that talks like him. Okay. And that's where these girls are being targeted in these affluent societies. Mm. Now, if you're going to pay a couple hundred dollars an hour or a couple thousand dollars for a, for an overnight with one of these women, you're going to expect her to look like your fantasy is that, that, that girl come, coming from an abusive home, strung out on drugs. Look, man, she's not going to make the cut. No one's going to pay $2,000 to spend the night with her. So there is a market for that girl. There is a market in exploitation. And, and there's a huge amount of these girls that are trapped in this, these women that are trapped in this because of the underprivileged uh, spaces they come from, the events of their lives, etc. But when you talk about the higher end market where the money is, is to be had, it's affluent girls that are beautiful. And usually in a pimp stable, they, um, they have a little bit of everything. They'll, they'll have a couple girls that they'll just be selling for 40, 50 bucks an hour, 30 bucks an hour uh, on the street or to, you know, to transients. And then they'll have the cream of their crop that they'll take care of in a different way. They'll groom in a different way. They'll market in a different way. Um, and they'll move to those areas where they can sell them. That's where I live in, in Bend, Oregon. We know for a fact, I've talked to pimps, they'll come all the way from L.A., to sell their girls because they can make five, $6,000 on a weekend that they can only make five to 600 in Los Angeles, you know? And I don't care whoever is out there listening. I don't care where you live, Nashville, uh, out there in Washington, DC, the crime is everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, definitely is. I mean, I just saw something here recently when we talked back and by the way, it's episode 180. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. But at that time frame, you know, I was talking about Atlanta, where I live. And you're like, oh, man, you know, Atlanta. And you kind of gave me the scale of where Atlanta falls. Well, of course, I've been seeing newspaper articles recently and people posting on Facebook about um, some of the you know people getting caught in the whole bit. But I think one of the things you mentioned in episode 180 that might be good in repeating is that it's, it's not necessarily these girls that are being abducted. Like people think that they're getting abducted. You know, we're coming in the middle of the night. We're breaking into your window. We're stealing a, a girl or we're breaking a you know, home invasion or something of this nature. There's a different way that these women are getting lured into these types of situations. Yeah. Uh, this is a shout out to uh, the Broward County Sheriff uh, individual that I was, was uh, teaching a couple months ago. Cause I, I had the same, same discussion. And even, even some of your cops, uh, misunderstand what this looks like. And we were explaining this and I, and I said, I looked at him and I said, Hey, what happens when a girl in your community is kidnapped? And he said, the entire world stops. Mm. I said, brother, I'm going to use that as a quote. Yeah. When a girl is kidnapped, everybody stops to take notice. Amber we alert. Have Amber alert. Yep, everyone's, yep. everyone's on the lookout. It, it's way too risky for these predators to kidnap a girl because every, everyone's looking and, and everyone cares. And that is a very cut and dry crime, right? Mm-hmm. A girl disappeared. It, it's a kidnapping. Well, if, if they can just 
lure a girl away from her family. So she runs away with her boyfriend or she goes to a concert with some friends and, and, and slowly begins to disappear, but she's checking in with her mom. Oh, everything's okay, mom. You know, I'm just, this is my choice or what it is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do. People stop, stop looking, Mm -hmm. you know, it just, the unfortunate thing is if, if a girl is kidnapped, unless she's being ransomed for some reason, she's not usually being brought into the sex trade. That is, that is some other type of pedophile or rapist who is going to end up killing her. You know, these girls that are being brought into the sex trade, they're being brought to be commercially sold. Your face is going to be advertised on these escort sites. People are going to see you out in the public. So they, they want everybody's guard down low, as low as possible. And that's how they can can grow at such a dynamic rate all across the U.S. Yeah, which is fascinating uh, to me because, I mean, one of the stories that you share that's out there on your Instagram uh, post, and I think it was like a series of three or four different posts, is about a girl who was off in college. She was very quiet and meek and had been kind of been raised in a bubble and somebody showed her affection for the first time. And there was a relationship that was built. And then he ended up uh, saying, Hey, <clears throat> Hey, wear something, you know, really nice for me. And she puts it on and she, she should have, you know, noticed the guard that came up in her own mind, but yet she didn't pay attention to that sign. And so she did. And so he gets her in the car and then they, he says on the way to dinner, Hey, I need to stop off and, you know, get something from my friends. And that's where it all started. And so, I mean, it can be something as simple as that. When I read that to my daughter, you know, her jaw dropped because again, she was thinking, well, wait, this is, this is a very different situation from in my head. What I always think of how women end up getting kind of that. It could be very, it could be a situation where these, these guys, you know, befriend you and you think that they're showing you attention. You think they want to be your boyfriend and yet they lead you down a different path. You know, that's scary. That's really yeah, scary. You know, and Bob, the, the couple years that we've been looking at it, you know, I, I, I tried to learn from interviewing uh, predators and pimps and Johns and survivors and, and observing and kind of dipping our toe into this crime. And what we had figured out was this, this grooming cycle, you know, where, where it kind of starts slow and they introduce themselves and all of these different elements. And, and it can take weeks and months and sometimes years for these guys to, to gain the trust of these girls and kind of separate them and isolate them. But I'll tell you what, these last couple of years, the predominant thing we've seen have, ha- has gone from first date, physical and sexual abuse, gang rape, uh, drugging, and you're stuck. So... Th- I don't I don't know if it's changed or if we're just beginning to learn more about it. But almost every case we've dealt with lately, that's how the girl was brought in. It oh started God. out on a simple date. But I think they're having such success with the shock and awe. I mean, they're, they're, they take these girls on the first date. They shoot them full of drugs. They take everything from them. They game rape them. They beat them. And they're they're in such shock. They literally sometimes return them home. But the girl is in such shock. She she doesn't know how to process this. And these guys know exactly when to reenter the picture. Sometimes they returned home. Sometimes they're not. But uh, but I I don't know what's happening. I don't know if it's new. This is one of these things we're trying to answer this year. Is is it is it just more violent? Are these guys just figuring out that this is the the bigger bang for their buck to to induce this level of violence early on? It's super violent, man. I I I think we talked about this last time. 
you know, my idea of the pimp was Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch. You yeah, know what I mean? The right. informed, remember that guy? Oh, yeah. You know, or, yeah. you know, the the felt hat wearing guy and you right. know, kind of the gentleman, gentleman pimp. Like he just, he sells girls. Dude, these guys are so vile and so violent. Um, we as a society have to call a spade a spade and, and stop glamorizing what, what they really are and who, and who they really are. Um, and that's one of the things we're, we're going to try to bring to light as, as much as we can, as we support law enforcement is getting these stories out about what these guys did to these girls and what they're doing to girls and what we as a society need to do to put them away for a longer time just to protect our communities. Cause they, they just don't stop. You know, um, when listening to that, I, I began thinking about, well, if, if there's an MO, if there's a pattern, if, if there are things that you're beginning to see as law enforcement that you can start picking out to warn individuals of what to look for, um, then it becomes more likely that you're going to get caught. But, but listening to what you just described, if it's shock and awe, well, then it's harder to figure out that pattern. Because there's a sound bite worth of information in the front end that can actually be identifiable that you can actually use as a marker to say, hey, if this ever happens to you, run. Yeah. So here's my glimmer of hope. Okay. Then we've seen it. We've seen it before. Uh, you know, we understand domestic abuse better. This These past couple of years, we're, we're beginning to, to understand sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace and, and all, you know, the power dynamics. So we're beginning to recognize that more and, 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 and helping these victims recognize if they go for help somebody is there so yeah bob we're we're never going to close that flash to bang like mm -hmm. we're you know it's going to be very hard for us to to interdict that because he's because there is no pattern it's a single date you meet them on tinder you go for a date next thing you know you're broken into the the life of a sex trafficking victim but if if these victims begin to know that there's a society out there that will welcome them you know, that will bring them back and help restore them and not not have this scarlet letter painted all over their face and body um, that people are looking for them and, and want to help them. That it's going to go a long ways. You know, I'm not a counselor. We don't help restore these girls, but we, we, we want these girls to know someone's out there looking. You know, remember uh, Black Hawk Down with Roberto, mm -hmm. not Roberto, <laughs> Roberto Durant, <laughs> a fighter. Remember with uh, Warren Officer Durant. Mm -hmm. Remember Black Hawk Down when they were flying around they didn't know where he was in Mogadishu, but they were saying, Michael Durant, we're, we're looking for you. We're going to come get you. Remember yeah. that in the movie? Oh, yeah. That yeah. really happened. Yeah. And when you, when you listen to Durant tell his story, that kept him alive. That gave him just enough to continue to fight. And that's one of the things we want to do with Guardian Group. Okay, We can't fly around with helicopters saying, hey, you, you know, girl, boy, lady, that's trapped in sex trafficking. We're, we're here for you. We're coming for you. But, but, but I want to say that on your airwaves, look, man, young lady, people, people love you out there. Okay. There's communities that love you. America is not what you've been exposed to and guarding groups specifically. We're there and we're looking for you and we want to come find you. And we want to send the cops there to, to offer you a, a way out. And this is going to take years to sink in. This is going to take years for our, commu our community to be able to step up. But that's the amazing um, solution to this crime is it just takes people caring on, on every side of it. And, and for these pimps and traffickers that convince these girls that they're worthless. And I think that's what the shock and awe is. You just you just were gang raped by 15 young men. OK, you're bleeding from every orifice. I'm 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 turning you into a junkie. 
you, you think your parents are going to take you back? You think your church is going to take you back? You think society wants you back? Mm. The answer is yes, we do. We do. We want you back. We're sorry for what you've gone through. We want to punish these assholes that did it to you, the people that are buying you, the people that are selling you. But man, if, if they can just know, hold on a little longer, mm-hmm. help is on the way. Wow. Cool. We can, we can change it, man. So what specifically does a Guardian Group do in helping law enforcement catch these predators or these uh, sex traffickers? So I don't want to get too deep into our TTPs, um, but, but, but by and large, what we do is we help them cross that line of probable cause, reasonable suspicion. Okay. We, we bring true identities to these victims. These girls are, are for sale all over the internet on all these different escort sites. And they have, they have fake names and they have fake identities and there's voice over IPs connected with the phone numbers. And, and, and we, we try to help uh, identify who they are. So now when a, when a cop is going out to try to recover this girl, he knows who she is, where she's from, who her family is, who her predator is, you know, and what is the likelihood that she's being trafficked. We're not there yet because we don't have the resources. We don't have enough resource, resources to track, tack, tackle trafficking, let alone prostitution. So if it's just a prostitution case, if it's just a girl that, that, that is being prostituted and we can't tie her to an oppressor, an exploiter, a trafficker, it, it loses its value for the district attorneys to pursue and the cops to pursue. But if we can demonstrate that the girl is a minor, there's no such thing as prostitution of a minor. Mm-hmm. That's a trafficking victim. So by and large, we try to give them enough info cross that threshold where now they can write warrants and subpoenas. They can get approvals by judges and grand juries to start to dig into these cases. And now their bosses are able to say, yep, I'll give you the resources you need. It's really all they need. Remember like a confidence target or mm-hmm. when you were, again, you're working with these, these host nation, you've got lists of targets and you just kind of tell them, Hey, this is, this is where the bad guy is. Go do it. Go solve that problem your way. That's largely what we do. Your episode, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, being, you know, something that really helped you guys get out there and some additional word about what you guys do. It, we, we did that episode back in April, so it's almost been a year since we did that. I'll tell you that it was it's in, I believe, our top five of 2019 episodes. So I'm hoping that this episode does the same, but I think, too, people ought to go ahead and um, take some kind of action, not just listen to it, but actually do something to help you guys become what you said you want to do, you know, where you want to be and where you want to take Guardian Group. So help individuals learn more about Guardian Group and where they can find you, how they can donate, what that money will be used for. I think that'll help them kind of understand that. But Mentors for Military has been really good to us. We, we've we've got, uh, there is there is no single bump that we've received more from an outpouring of support, uh, more people following us on social media, even directly tying back some some donations. Uh, we really got this thing figured out. We, we, we were ready to scale. Uh, I think we're on about 120 cases this past year. Oh, my God. Uh, we, we, we've got, well, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you know, I'm glad you are, are satisfied with that number. It is barely scratching the surface. You know, uh, our, our direct need is is purely financial when we're we have that offense and the defense the defense is the training program mm-hmm. there's just a couple of us that are running around the country I, I i don't i don't remember what our numbers are i think we did about 90 training sessions and trained about five or six thousand people this year again that's a it's a very small cadre we have doing that 
in our in our offense section, the the intel that 120 cases. Um, you know, I think we identified between 70 and 80 of these victims. I put a true identity to it that law enforcement was able to move and take action on. Again, we it's it's time to to scale those programs. And before I knew I was on uh, on the we were we were taping when I first started. Uh, I was saying, you know, just how how things are different. I'm much more comfortable now just t- telling people we just we just need funding. You know, yeah. we are 100 percent transparent with what we do. I'm really proud with the way we measure our performance. Uh, we're really trying to measure our, our, our impact further. So what uh, what our immediate needs is to expand both of our training programs so that we can reach more people so that they are now uh, equipped to fight this fight and recognize trafficking when they see it. And then our direct action approach with the offense and that support to law enforcement. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do with this episode specifically was highlight some of your background to let them understand your team and and that you're selecting the right individuals to be a part of this organization so that, you know, you can really execute on the mission. You can go out there and do what you've got to do. And it's going to take the right skill sets and the right individuals, um, which of course that requires funding. You'd love to be able to get volunteers to do this for absolutely nothing. And if those guys are out there with the right skill set, then definitely contact Jeff. But I mean, um, otherwise, you know, you're going to have to hire, you're going to have to buy equipment. You're going to have to do the types of things to run an organization and do it on an annual basis to do that. You need individuals to lend their support through financial, um, you know, support and do it on a regular basis. Let's just be real. And Bob, the, the easiest thing that we've really been working on this past year is is those monthlies. You know, five dollars a month, ten dollars a month, a hundred bucks a month. You know, to to get kind of in that steady rhythm of of what you're interested in and what you want to support. I like to think what we give back to you is is this awareness about the team. Um, we're largely an open book for those that are supporting us. Any type of questions that they have, even some of the questions that I just can't don't quite feel comfortable speaking on on this platform oh, sure. we, we we're, we're really open and and that that is our goal for 2019 is to find what our output costs are are matched by our our monthlies and once we're able to do that man now we can start to dream about that expansion and start to plant teams all across the u.s yeah no i think that's amazing um of course how can people find out if they're okay they're listening to this and they're saying okay this i'm i'm, I'm in i'm all in <laughs> Uh, what is it? What's the way in which I, I donate? How do I find your website or? Yep. Guardiangroup.org. Uh, that, that's, that, that's the other thing I was going to mention. Another thing we're proud of are we have a, a, a new, uh, improved website from the last time you saw it. You could spend hours on our website and learn a lot about this crime. So guardiangroup.org, go to what you're interested in. If you're interested in the training or the offense or you know how how we can get to your community. We have we have programs specific to t- training hotels because they're on that front line once mm-hmm. that that purchase is made. The hospital uh, hospitals, the healthcare industry, because these girls are in and out. We have a lot of specialty uh, training courses that we have, um, and then there's the donate page on there. And you just you know again that monthly donation will go a long ways for us. It costs us somewhere between a hundred and three hundred bucks. Um, it's, it's just straight up man hours to put together an Intel packet, like to get that initial lead packet to push to push to law enforcement. So people can kind of gauge that, you know, um, a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a lead pack. That's one lead packet each month that you're sponsoring. Now, again, these aren't, these aren't exactly one for ones, you know what I mean? Cause it depends on what it is we're doing, but it gives, it gives people a good idea of, of where their dollars are going. 
No, it does. And so I was going to, I'm glad you actually said that because that's where exactly where I was going to take you because some people may look at it and go, okay, I just don't want to give $5 a month. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to give something that I know is really going to make an impact. You just gave that measurable amount. So you just gave someone an idea of, okay, one packet, hundred to 300. So if you want to give 1200, you're helping 12 cases. It's easy to do the math, figure it all out. That's, that's easy math. And again, if, if it's, if it's not in your you know, if, if if you can't afford it, get get five friends to give twenty bucks a month. You know, come in as come in as these teams, and that is that is the easiest way to to look at it, is is just the way you described it, and Man. that is what I, how I want people to put it in their mind. And again, when I say lead packet, again, we 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 kind of use antiseptic ideas here. That's a girl. That's 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 a girl that we've identified who has a history and a life and a family and somebody cares about her. And even if it isn't her family that cares about her, if it's her family that sold her into this, these people that are joining with us, these donors, they're demonstrating they care about her. And man, I, you know, somewhere, somewhere up in heaven, those names are getting attached to this soul. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's, I want people to think of it in that way. The fight is the fight, but man, um, to support it, we're going to see it in this life and the next. Okay. So, so what I just picked up here is that we're looking for, why don't we just reach out and say, we're looking for individuals and especially in each major community, but if nothing else, wherever you are right now, if you feel like the need that you want to be a leader, step up and lead right now, create a team of individuals that you can then get additional information. You might be able to receive some training. You're donating to the cause. You're bringing education to your community and you're doing it all while networked in with guardian group and helping support a great agency across the nation. So where is, you know, team wherever come up with a name, create an organization and a network that's in a small area and make an impact of what you can actually reach in your sphere of influence, wherever you are and coordinate all that with Jeff. I'm sure he'll work with you to try to get you the type of education that you need, the materials to help your, your community. Um, and, um, you know, and, and show you ways in which you can donate to the cause on a grander scale. Love it, Bob. Yeah. Love it, Bob. Spot yeah. on, brother. Yeah, let's let's try to make this happen. So um, if you're looking out there on the Instagram page, it's Guardian Group as well. We're uh, following uh, Guardian Group. But I'll also make sure I put some of the links within the show notes so that they can find you as well and get uh, directly reached out. But I certainly would love to have individuals tag, tag both of us on social media, of uh, the group that they've started, the team name that they've come up with that's unique, um, or maybe you just call it team wherever it is that you live, Team Seattle, Team Atlanta. Team St. Louis. I don't care. Just come up with something. I'm all about it. I know Jeff is. Let's see if we can make something happen. Bob, again, I really appreciate it. it, it, it it's again, I think it's poignant that we're this is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, where people all across the country, all across the all across the globe, are having these discussions, uh, turning these discussions into action um, that we can measure and affects on actual human lives. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for the platform, for the opportunity. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate you coming on brother. I look forward to uh, you coming back on again and I'd love to, to hear that 120 because I do think it's a, it's a solid number, uh, being something along the line of 240, 300. I mean, you know, if we if we do what we're talking about here, the sky's the limit. So thank you for uh, coming on. Wish you nothing but the best in the, the new year here and uh, look forward to catching up with you again here soon. Thanks, Bob. We'll give you we'll give you feedback. I, I, there's no doubt that this audience um, has heard us and they'll respond and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give you feedback on all that. Excited. 